You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men, on the same day together. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth-shan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there, and they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and this is episode 750 of this podcast. That was a reading of 1 Samuel chapter 31 for Monday, November 6, 2023. Welcome back if you have been a listener to this podcast, and welcome for the first time if you haven't. If this is your first introduction to the podcast, Check it out on whatever your preferred platform is. You'll probably find the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on that platform. It gets rehosted. Spotify for podcasters is where I do my hosting, but Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podcasts Galore, Audible, Amazon Podcasts, all the podcast places pretty much rehost my Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. So, If you like a different platform and you want to sign up, subscribe, follow, whatever you call it, get notifications when there's new episodes to listen to, you'll probably be able to. Also, on Spotify specifically, you can subscribe for 99 cents a month and you'll get 
every third episode, because every third is subscriber only in the month that it's published. You can get every third the month that it comes out. Otherwise, you'll have to wait until the following month. So for instance, December 1st, all of the subscriber only content will be available for the general public. But in the meantime, only subscribers who are paying 99 cents a month will get the access. So if you don't want to miss the content when it's fresh, when it first comes out, you should go over to Spotify and sign up. And then I make a little money and that's all right, but that's not what I'm here for. I'm not here to make money. I am here to talk about everything. I'm here to talk about the things that we need to be talking about, but it's harder for us to talk about when we're too busy trusting the experts or when we're too busy being autonomous individuals who believe that your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. It's all subjective. Who can really know? That's bad anthropology. We don't understand our own nature and therefore we don't understand one another and we can't really relate to one another in a productive, happy, healthy way when we don't have good anthropology. Autonomous individualism doesn't work. It's very lonely and it's just a matter of time before the fun runs out and you find yourself, I would say, in Saul's position, given that we just read 1 Samuel chapter 31. But then also too, the other side of this is statism. When we trust that the government is just going to figure everything out for us and tell us what is permitted and tell us what is forbidden and tell us what they're going to reward and incentivize and (laughs) fund and just take care of for us and what they're going to fine or audit or regulate or require a permit for. When the government is the answer to every problem, you have all kinds of problems And you really don't get solutions anymore because you weed out the people who are going to be trying to make decisions together in other parts of life that are not government controlled, that shouldn't be government controlled. The government cannot become your God. Unfortunately for many of us, if we haven't opted for autonomous individualism, we've opted for statism. And so we'll be talking about that in this podcast more generally, in this episode more specifically and in relation to 1 Samuel chapter 31. But that is to say, let's talk about 1 Samuel 31, the last chapter of the story of King Saul. This is not a long chapter, but then it feels as though it's been a long time coming, and there's been so much tension built up with one, if you remember, Israel demanding a king in the first place. Think back to Israel saying, we want the king like the nations around us have kings. Samuel, you are old. Look, you're old. And your sons are not like you. You've appointed your sons to be judges, but they are not honest. They do take bribes. They do corrupt justice. The people of Israel, the elders of Israel are very blunt with Samuel, the last of the judges and a prophet. They say, We do not accept them. We reject your sons. We want a king. And Samuel is offended. He's upset at first. He feels personally rejected, even just by extension with his sons being rejected. But God tells Samuel, they have not rejected you. They've rejected me. But obey the voice of the people. Give them a king. Only solemnly warn them about everything that's going to happen when they have a king. And remember, 
what was going to happen. A king was going to take their sons for service in the military. A king was going to take their daughters to be bakers and cupbearers. And here, those are not all. That's not an exhaustive list. But a king was going to take daughters from the men of Israel to serve the king, to serve in his palace, to serve in his home, to serve in whatever capacity he wanted. A king was going to take the best fields, the best vineyards for himself. He was going to take the best of the livestock. He was going to take the best and the brightest of the leaders and appoint them to be commanders over the army. A king was not going to just provide representation. There was going to be a cost. God told Samuel to warn the people of Israel, do what they say, but warn them, this is what is going to happen. And you might think to yourself, well, that's not very helpful, but it is. It is actually. When the consequences catch up with Israel, they have something to refer back to that demonstrates that God knew, this is not taking him by surprise. Also, they have something as a roadmap for how to learn from the mistake, if they will. And maybe that's just a generational thing. And maybe it doesn't last forever. And maybe they're just going to go right back to the same folly, the same tomfoolery in a short enough time, in the span of the coming years or decades. But that doesn't mean that it's not worth having a wiser course, a more righteous choice after they've suffered the consequences, after they've fooled around and found out. And the warning on the front end of here's what's going to happen gives them some idea of what to do next or how to learn from the mistake, how to recover, how to do something better after they've tried this. But Saul, he does not start out so great. He, he really doesn't. When he's first being presented to the people of Israel, he can't be found. Samuel is addressing the elders. And where is Saul? Oh, he's hiding in the baggage. Why is he hiding? Because he's afraid of the people. He's afraid of the people that he is supposed to rule over. That's not a good way to start. And for that matter, it's who Saul is. He's the most handsome man. If there was a sexiest man alive in Israel at that time, apparently he would have won the award. He would have won the magazine cover and the write-up. Why are you so good looking? Man, you're embarrassingly good looking, Saul. Oh, gosh, you know. Shucks. Thanks. But not just that. He's also head and shoulders taller than all the other men. So he's not just good looking. He's tall. And that tallness, people will suppose, translates to authority or at least intimidation. If you don't have authority over, let's say, a foreign delegation that comes to speak with you on behalf of their kingdom as you're making arrangements, as you're establishing friendly relations and trade deals and peace treaties and what have you, jockeying for position maybe over territory and disputes of various kinds, the tallest guy is going to have an easier time intimidating the other person without saying anything that could be cited as blameworthy, as provocative. Also in battle, the tallest guy is going to be seen by the other troops in the fray. And they'll be able to see him and the enemy will be able to see him. And just like in 
a trade negotiation or some kind of a peace treaty deliberation or some kind of a jockeying for position over a territorial dispute. On the battlefield also, the tallest guy, head and shoulders taller than everybody else, is going to cast a long shadow in the minds of your enemy. And that's the hope. That's what they're thinking. But then the tallest guy, if he is a coward or if he's got some major emotional, mental, spiritual imbalances, if he is very turbulent, if he is not fair, if he is sometimes cowardly and sometimes he becomes enraged and he lashes out and he just kills or tries to kill whoever he's angry with in the moment, the tall guy who everybody can see, who is lifted up for everybody to see, is going to do a tremendous amount of damage. He can do a tremendous amount of good, they're thinking, that's why they want a king, but he can also do a tremendous amount of damage, a tremendous amount of harm. And so Saul does. He turns the kingdom upside down, going after, of all people, David. And it seems reluctantly, only begrudgingly, does he break off pursuit of David to deal with the Philistines. And he was supposed to deal with the Philistines, and he was supposed to deal with the Amalekites too. God commanded Saul, whatever you feel about it, to kill everyone among the Amalekites, and Saul wouldn't do it. Saul wouldn't do it. He feared the people at some points. He feared the enemy at other points. He didn't fear God, and that was his undoing. His disobedience, coupled with his stubbornness, coupled with his cowardice, it all amounted to faithlessness. And so the kingdom here, finally, in 1 Samuel 31, in God's good timing, the kingdom is taken away from Saul. And what's sad, and there's a lot about this, is just very, very sad. What's sad is his sons are killed. Jonathan, in particular, is a head scratcher for me because I think, man, Jonathan was so excellent. Why did Jonathan die? But then something you have to think about is that Jonathan knew the kingdom was being taken away from his father. He knew that the kingdom was being given to David. He was good with that. As a matter of fact, he was conceiving of scenarios in which after God had taken the kingdom from his father and given it to his friend, David, he would be by David's side and helping him to serve this people and rule this people, Israel. Jonathan, on the other hand, at the same time, was in a very difficult position. How do you object to what your own father is doing as he's perverting justice, as he's disobeying God, as he's leading the people of Israel astray by his bad example, by his corrupt edicts, by his unjust punishment of people who did nothing wrong, persecution and prosecution of people who did nothing wrong. They just upset him. They just angered him. How do you object to, how do you object to all of that? How do you say, hey, that's bad. We shouldn't do that. And also at the same time, honor your father, the king. It seems to me, although it's not explicitly said in so many words, it seems to me as though Jonathan goes into battle with his father because die though he might, he will honor his father at the end by going into battle with him and dying by his side or near enough. Saul's sons die in battle with the Philistines. All of Saul's men die in battle with the Philistines. Saul at the last and then his armor bearer fall on their swords rather than being taken into 
possession by the enemy, by the Philistines. And one thing about that too, and maybe those of us who don't really think about war, we're uncomfortable with military, this, fighting, action, violence, and I can't blame you for that. You should be. That's not how we were originally set up to be. We're not originally wired for killing and being killed. But for those of you who have not really looked war in the face and tried to understand it and tried to study what to make of it or what to do about it, what Saul and his armor bearer are doing when they fall on their sword here is they're taking themselves out of the grasp of an enemy they anticipate is not going to treat them kindly. They're not anticipating mercy from the Philistines, to put it mildly. They're anticipating humiliation and torture, a long, slow, agonizing death for sport, for the amusement of a bitter, hated enemy in the Philistines. Think back to the book of Judges and Samson, the judge, being taken captive by the Philistines. What do they do? They gouge out his eyes. So there's that. But then they also make sport with him. They humiliate him. They have the lords of the Philistines who gather together in this arena or this temple, and they bring Samson out to make sport of him, for him to be entertainment. What does that mean? What were they doing to him? What were they forcing him to do that was amusing to them? Probably anything and everything that randomly popped into their mind. Probably whatever was the most humiliating and degrading way to treat him. That's probably what they were treating him like. And so Saul falling on his sword here, on the one hand, you think, man, he died by his own hand at the last. That's not good. And it's not. It's sad. It's very sad. But that is to say, too, he knew he was going to be tortured. He knew he was going to be humiliated, and he wouldn't allow that. He didn't want that. If I'm going to die anyway, this will be quicker. This will be more dignified. And yet, what do they do? When the Philistines find his body, they cut off his head, and his body and his son's bodies are hung on the wall of Bethshan. You think, wow, that's really grotesque. That's really gruesome. Hung on the wall? Yes. Because why? Because to hang their bodies from the walls communicates terror to all their other enemies. It communicates triumph to the people of Philistia. Hey, see this? Here's our trophy. See what we did? See what we can do? See how strong we are? See how capable we are? See how relentlessly... We will pursue our objectives. This is a warning to anybody internally. Don't cross us. See what we're willing to do to our enemies. See what we're willing to do to anybody who gets between us and what we want. But then understand, these are human remains. These are the bodies of men. If this is what they would do to Saul and his sons after their death, what would they have done if they had captured them alive? this kind of a thing while they were living until they decided they were bored and killed them or until they died of being tortured and humiliated. So what do the men do of Israel? What do the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead do when they hear what the Philistines had done to Saul, that is to say the body of Saul, 
when they hear this, all the valiant men, which is to say the courageous men, the brave men, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan and brought them back to Jabesh and burned them. Why do they burn the bodies? Why? Well, I think a good reason is because however long they've been hanging up, they're a mess and they probably stink. And that in its own way is further humiliation. It's further degradation of the memory of these men. So how do you honor these men? You cremate them. You burn their bodies and that puts a stop to them rotting if they had been rotting, which they probably had. But then besides that, you might get sick. Even burying them, you're going to have a smell if you don't burn them first. So they burn them. They burn them and then they bury their bones under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and they fast for seven days. This process of fasting at the conclusion of Saul's story, it seems to me is about really purging what had been before in preparation for whatever comes next. This is going to throw everybody for a loop. Everybody's going to be wandering around a bit shell-shocked in the wake of this. It's a traumatic thing mentally and emotionally. Even if you didn't take any physical injuries, you're still traumatized because, again, this isn't how we're supposed to be. This isn't how it was supposed to be in the beginning. This is a deviation due to the sin of man, to the sinful nature, the sinful, broken character of man as he relates to his fellow man and as he relates to God. And so it is traumatic. It's very upsetting. These guys fast for seven days. So they're trying to purify themselves. They're trying to cleanse themselves. They're trying to recover from the stress. This is a detox in all ways. And that's the end, right? That's the end of Saul. That's the end of First Samuel. You're not told what's about to happen, what is happening next. That's just a hard stop. Now, there is Second Samuel, which we'll get into in our next episode. We'll start the introduction, and we'll find out that life goes on, the king is dead, and are we going to hear long live the king? You'll have to tune in to find out. But for now, I want to leave us in the sobriety of the moment, that sin has very serious consequences. It did for Saul. It did for the nation of Israel. It does for us and for our country. We should hate sin. We should want to put our sin to death before it kills us, because it will if we don't. By God's grace, we can, and so we should. But let's talk about some current events items. And actually, Speaking of how human remains are disposed of, how they are treated, there's a link that has been hanging out in my browser for about a month now, actually. October 7th, Colin Jones published this piece at The Blaze with the headline, Police Discover 115 Bodies in Green Funeral Home in Colorado After Reports of Sickening Stench in the Area. Long and short of it, This small town, Penrose, Colorado, about three hours from where I live in Greeley, just west, northwest of Pueblo, pretty close to Pueblo on the map. This little town of 
Penrose had a facility called the Return to Nature Funeral Home, where authorities looking into reports from people who lived nearby that there was just this awful smell and they weren't sure what it was, authorities went into the facility and found that green burials, so-called, advertised without using embalming chemicals or metal caskets because, you know, we want to be environmentally conscious. These so-called green burials that family and friends were paying for were really just turning into those dead bodies without any treatment, without any care, essentially. Those dead bodies were just being warehoused and then they were decomposing in this house. This house where also taxidermy was being conducted, taxidermy of animals. But then that is to say that these human remains were just rotting, just decomposing in this house. And the smell was so bad, the decomposure was so bad, so awful, that neighbors living nearby were calling 911. Hey, what's your emergency? There's this awful smell, like something is dead or somebody is dead or a whole lot of somebody's are dead nearby. Can you look into it? We don't know what's going on. I bring this up, right? I bring this up not to be macabre, not to be gross. In fact, it sat as an open tab in my browser for the last month because I was feeling revolted by it. I was feeling disgusted about it. I bring this up now that we've read the end of Saul and the way that the Philistines treat his remains and the remains of his son's bodies and how the men of Jabesh Gilead are not going to accept that. They go through the night. They retrieve the body of these men to give them a proper burial. I bring this up because whether you worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or whether you're a pagan and you either worship the earth spirit or you worship some false god or a pantheon of false gods or you worship animal spirits, it makes a huge difference for how you think human remains should be treated. Somebody was alive and now they're not. They died. What do you do with their body? Do you treat that body as though there's something special about it? If you believe that man is made in God's image after his likeness, you do. If you believe that man is not just another animal and certainly is not some kind of a plague or some kind of a virus on planet Earth, if you believe that man is the crowning glory of God's creation because man is created in God's image, then out of reverence for the living God, you see that even your enemies, even people you don't like, get a proper burial. And you don't make some grotesque show of tormenting or displaying or humiliating even the memory of that person the way that the Philistines did. Now, there are some things to figure out when we're talking Old Testament treatment of remains. Say, for instance, Goliath. If you'll remember earlier in 1 Samuel, the champion from Gath, the giant Goliath, after David falls him with the sling and the stone, what does David do? He goes up, he grabs Goliath's sword, and he cuts off his head. You might think, well, that doesn't seem like it's in keeping with what you're talking about. 
the proper handling of human remains? Well, for one thing, if you're not sure that you're sure that you're sure that Goliath is dead before you cut off his head, you're definitely sure after you've beheaded him. And it seems to indicate from the text that he was killed when his head was cut off. You're making sure that he's dead. But then also, too, you're able to carry that head to anybody who has a question, anybody who has any doubts. Is he alive? Is he dead? Is he just knocked out? If the whole point of this single combat trial in the case of Goliath is that the Philistines and the Israelites are going to see whose champion is better, whose army is better, whose God is better, to hold up the head severed from its body of the fallen champion of the other side shows your side, hey, we won. We definitely won. If you're not sure, here you go. Here's the proof. It also shows the other side, hey, for sure, for sure, for sure, your guy is down and out and you're next. And you might say, well, that's horrible. That's horrible. What were you just saying about man being created in God's image? Yes, but sin leads to death. And you say, okay, well, but if that's the case, then who cares how we dispose of human remains? Because sin, right? Sin means man is just this awful, well, maybe virus, maybe plague. Creation was subjected, not willingly, to futility. But because man fell, because Adam ate the forbidden fruit and brought the curse of sin and death into the world, man is kind of a virus. And so why shouldn't you just do whatever with human remains? Why shouldn't you build a platform out of sticks and just put the body up there and let the ravens and the vultures do what they do? Why not just leave the bodies of your loved ones for nature to take its course and dispose of them? I think, speaking personally, the answer has less to do with the character of the person, more to do with the character of God. It's an uncomfortable thing to talk about. It's an uncomfortable thing to think about. But if you've ever been to a funeral for somebody you knew really, really well, or somebody you didn't hardly know, either way, it's this odd experience, especially if there's an open casket, especially if you did know them in life. It's this odd experience because it's like, hey, this is this person that I know, but it's also not them. Because the part of them that I knew and conversed with and had a relationship with is no longer there. Now what remains is their remains. That's why we call them remains. I bring this to your attention not because I have it all figured out, but because the implications of this climate change combating new religion of environmentalism for how we treat every stage of human life from cradle to grave, the implications are pretty significant. I don't think this is going to be the last time we're shocked or horrified or revolted to hear that people advertising carbon neutral this or that did something that does not at all accord with what is traditionally accepted to be good and proper. But then you have to understand that that's the big idea. That's the big draw for a lot of people who believe that the autonomous individual needs to assert their own independence by violating taboos, violating norms, violating traditions, throwing them away, if for no other reason than to prove that they're not subject to those things. But then what is that at a certain point? If some of these traditions are not just traditions, if they are actually commands from God or they're predicates 
are inseparable from the truth about God found in the Bible, what you will find is more and more people will do and say things just to be transgressive. Now, I don't know if that's the case in this Penrose, Colorado story, that the person was trying to be as transgressive as they possibly could. But I have a hunch that they were okay with going down this path because they had made preliminary decisions, earlier decisions, their orientation towards God and their fellow man well before this decision to open up the funeral home and just let 115 bodies decompose. I I would say with a certainty, their orientation towards God and their fellow man was long ago predetermined to be meh. I do what I want. I do what seems good to me. This back to nature really does beg the question. And this is the question we have to grapple with in terms of being wise as serpents or knowing how to plan or knowing how to be wise and how to be protective of our families or how to be provisional. How do you provide in this kind of an environment where nothing is sacred? Your ability to provide, your capacity to provide food, clothing, shelter, keeping the lights on, keeping the water running, providing good health care, all of it is in question. All of it is up in the air and could be renegotiated, retooled, re-engineered in a moment's notice by bureaucrats and activists and politicians and academics. You need to know that our theology and our anthropology, if they don't always tell us every little particular, if they don't always give us all of our traditions or any of our traditions whole cloth, they definitely do inform what is beyond the pale and what is within an acceptable, proper range. And we should appreciate that. You should think carefully about how far someone might go if they're advertising carbon neutral, green, sustainable, this, that, or the other thing. How far might they go in pursuing what they think will accomplish the larger objective of saving the planet? And if they think that zero environmental impact from humans is the ideal, how far will they go if they're advertising something to you as green, sustainable, carbon neutral, or as the case may be, how far will they not go? If they have a low regard for your interest as a human being, your flourishing, the flourishing of your family, your loved ones, either living or deceased, if they have very low regard because they see humanity as not the crowning glory, but rather the germplasm of creation, or rather the cosmos, they might advertise one thing and deliver something very, very different than what you were expecting. You might be thinking benefits and you might not be counting the cost, particularly if the person's worldview is godless, if the person's worldview is animistic or pagan, or if they believe that the universe is God, God is the universe, it makes a big difference. And you should expect it to. And if you say, oh, no, ah, come on, come on, look, right? Look at this story. This story should be proof enough that even something as sacred as how your loved one might be disposed of, might be buried or cremated or let to rot in a house till the authorities can't even identify who this was, even something as sacred and special as that is very much up in the air. 
and therefore everything is. When these are the folks who insist we need more abortion, more access to birth control or contraception or, yes, infanticide by way of abortion, and that's how they view the beginning of human life, and then at the very end of life, they're willing to say, yeah, just let this person, let 115 people who were family and friends to somebody, let all those people, all those remains of people rot in a building indefinitely until somebody else steps in and says, no, 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 no. If that's the bookend on either side, then what's in the middle, what's in between is pretty wide open as far as how you as a living person, how your family, how your friends might be related to, how how you might be treated, how you might be either neglected on the one hand or actively preyed upon on the other hand. If it's the law of the jungle, if it's just whatever, whatever the animals are willing to do, whatever the fungus and bacteria might be willing to do, that's within the realm of possibilities for what we will say is morally justified, which is to say that there is no morality, which is to say we're good with the brokenness of sin and death. We're going to embrace that. In fact, we're going to lean into it. Every kind of evil will be justified and they won't even have to justify it. There won't even be any warning. It'll just be chaos. It'll just be random acts of violence of the most heinous, cruel, heartless kinds against anybody and everybody over the most trivial of reasons or no reason at all. You think it's just, well, do people believe in God or do they believe something else? And you might have in your mind that there is somebody that you know who is new age and they're a nice person. And there's somebody you know who's a Buddhist and they're decent. There's somebody you know who's a Muslim and you're like, ah, that's fine. They're hard workers, very serious, but they've always treated me decent. You might think you know somebody who's into the occult and Wicca and yeah, it's, it's kind of weird, but I mean, as long as they don't <laughs> try to sacrifice me to their Baphomet statue, I, I guess it's okay. No, 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 no. Hear me, right? Hear me when I say hell on earth can be unleashed. When we say the only thing we won't tolerate is Christians saying, this is true, that is not true. This is good, that is not good. When the people who worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people who look to Christ as their Lord and Savior, say, hey, this isn't so good, we should do this instead. Hey, that's not appropriate, that's not right, that's not true. How do I know? Because God's word tells me that that's not good, that's not true, this is good, this is true, this is the way, walk you in it. That's the only thing we won't tolerate. When that gets to be the case, Brace yourself for every kind of evil practice, every kind of horrific outcome. You are the salt of the earth. Salt that has lost its savor is good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. Nobody lights a candle and then hides it under a bushel. You hold it up so that everything around can be illuminated. There are people right now who want to put out the light and they want to throw the salt out and trample on it. But God wins. Just like with the person of Saul, where Saul is disobedient, he does his own thing, he's stubborn, he won't turn away from his unjust, murderous campaign against David, and then the kingdom is taken away from him because he wouldn't 
make war on the evildoers that God told him to, but he did want to make war on David, who had done what he was supposed to do. He wanted to reward those who do what is evil and punish those who do what is good, or at least neglect punishing those who do what is evil while actively seeking to punish those who did what was good. We appreciate all the more what a mercy it was that God in heaven, by his own means, diverse methods, removed Saul from the kingdom. And in short order, we'll see, God puts David on the throne. And David is a good king. Not a perfect king, but he's a good king. And God gives more grace. And the test is not, does somebody always only ever do what they should be doing? Do they only always ever say what they should be saying? But the question is, when they err, does it grieve them? Do they go to God? Do they ask God's forgiveness? Do they repent? Do they turn away? Do they confess? Hey, I have sinned. Yes, I have. And please forgive me. I'm turning away from my sin. I'm turning back to righteousness. David does. Saul never does. David consistently does. And God is still the God who removes Saul in the case of 1 Samuel 31. And as we'll see, God is still the God who puts David on the throne, just as he said he would. But moving on, let's talk about another story that is adjacent to or related to the subject matter in 1 Samuel 31. Saul takes his own life as he knows that he is badly wounded by the Philistines' archers. They're going to get him. They're going to take him, either dead or alive. And he decides to take his own life. He asks his armor bearer to run him through and give him a good, quick, clean death. His armor bearer won't, so he falls on his own sword. His armor bearer falls on his own sword. There are people increasingly in our midst here in America who are taking their own lives. And in our next story from the Billings Gazette, actually, Aaron Bolton, KFF Health News, is how it's presented from October 27th in the Billings Gazette. In our next story, you have the proposal that people who are firearms owners and also struggling with suicidal thoughts, thoughts of self-harm, can store their firearms away from the home, outside of their own house, temporarily, so as to remove the temptation, remove the temptation to take their own lives with a firearm. Here's the headline. Storing guns away from home could reduce suicides, but legal hurdles loom. The legal hurdles being referenced here are not anything to do with federal law, but they do pertain to a few states in the country where it is not legal. And I want to draw your attention to those states where it is not legal to have possession of someone else's firearm if you are not the registered owner of that firearm. According to the Billings Gazette, you can't have that firearm in your possession. New York and Massachusetts have state laws, according to this write-up from Aaron Bolton, they have state laws which make it legally almost impossible to take possession of somebody else's firearms, even temporarily, if, say, for instance, they're at risk of committing suicide or harming themselves. And so here's the Billings Gazette writing for B. 
Billings, Montana, where this is not a factor. This is not a concern. Why are they writing about it here? Well, they're writing about it here because in the Rocky Mountains region, you have a lot of liberals who have moved away from California, for instance, and they want to push their liberal ideas. They're really not liberal, but left statist ideas on the rest of the country, and they're working their way from the West to the East to do so. And this is one of those things to just kind of insinuate. That's my opinion, to insinuate that gun owners are a danger to themselves and others. And maybe it would be good if we stored everybody's firearms away from their home. Let's start with the people who are suicidal. But wait a second. Wait a second. How many people are we talking about here? And also, if you're writing about this in the Billings Gazette in Montana, where this is not so much of a concern as pertains to state laws, you're not talking really about changing the state laws to make it permissible. It's already permissible. Then what are you doing? You're hoping to encourage people who are thinking about suicide or they're thinking about self-harm to encourage them to give their guns to somebody else and to set up places where we could store your firearms away from you to where they're not close at hand. What concerns me, and I'll just be very open and honest about this, what concerns me is you juxtapose talk of New York and Massachusetts state laws where it's almost legally impossible to take possession of somebody else's firearms, and it's a hop, skip, and a jump if you start trying to make this a national thing and you're a Democrat, and you're on the left, and you're a statist, it's a hop, skip, and a jump away to saying you just have an armory where you keep everybody's guns because you don't know who might suddenly become suicidal. They might suddenly become very extremely depressed or anxious, or they might suddenly become whatever, fill in the blank, might cause them to be violent towards themselves or others. We're just going to store everybody's firearms here, and then we have to do some kind of an evaluation. We have to do an assessment on your mental health before we check the gun out to you, almost like it's a library. What's concerning to me is if the Democrats are, as they are, big on gun control and they are okay with gun registration. In fact, they have tried various ways over the years to get everybody to register their firearms. And they have tried, and they are still trying, to ban so-called assault rifles, but really just modern sporting rifles, AR-15s. They're trying to ban those. And if they can't ban them, then they'll ban their components or they'll classify their components as requiring a special tax stamp, requiring special background checks. That is to say, requiring registration and putting your name and your address and your firearms on a national gun database. This feels off. This feels like it's not just we're trying to work with the Republicans on mental health. It feels like a backdoor to implying that common citizens should not keep and bear arms, like the Second Amendment says. Let's insinuate that, you know, it, you really shouldn't be trusted with these firearms because some people shoot themselves. Somebody killed somebody killed themselves, maybe in your area with a firearm, and so therefore we just don't want to trust any of you with a firearm. Well, listen, here's the, here's the thing of it. Just like people 
can use other means to be violent towards the general public. If they intend harm to other people, they don't need a firearm necessarily to cause harm. They can use a vehicle, for instance. They can drive a vehicle into a crowd of people or into a building. They could use a knife. They could use a tire iron. They could use a a cinder block. They can use whatever. They could use a baseball bat. They can use anything that is capable of inflicting harm if their intention is to cause harm to other people. So also, if you take firearms away, or if you subtly but surely imply that we should be setting up armories for the firearms of private citizens in communities all across the country, and then you at first just say it's an option you're free to avail yourself of, and then later on you say you must store your weapons here, store your firearms here. What is that doing that's so different from the argument that's made about taking guns away or restricting gun ownership in the case of mass shootings? You say, okay, this person, they might be a harm to themselves, and so we're going to pave the way for them to have their guns taken away from them. This feels like a variation on the red flag laws. Somebody calls in that this person is a danger to themselves or others, and without any due process, they can have their firearms taken away. You start with this, but then have you actually taken away this person's capacity to harm themselves or others? No, you haven't. There are a lot of ways that people ended their lives. There were a lot of ways prior to the invention of the firearm in the first place And even if you take firearms away, if somebody intends to harm themselves, they will find a way. In the case of Saul in 1 Samuel 31, the key ingredient here is not the sword. He had the sword for a good long time before he fell on it. The key ingredient here was despair. The big problem here is not that people have firearms in their homes. The big problem here is why are people despairing of life itself? Why are they so hopeless? Why are they so sad or so frustrated or so angry or so depressed? What has taken hope away from them that the future has something for them that's good, that they should look forward to? Why are they in that place? That's what I want to know. Not how can we get the firearms away from them so they don't hurt themselves. I understand you could possibly say, hey, let's put the firearm over here while you deal with the mental health issues, and you can come back for it later. I get that. I do understand that. But it's a weird look. It's a weird look for Billings, Montana, if we're going to say that there are legal hurdles. Legal hurdles don't loom in the state of Montana. Legal hurdles don't pertain in the case of the Rocky Mountains, unless you want to have the same kinds of gun laws in the Rocky Mountains that they do in New York and Massachusetts. I personally do not at all want those kinds of laws, but some people do, especially among the Democrats, in particular among the Democrats, and they've wanted them for a long, long time. They don't want people like you and me, individuals like you and me, having deadly force. They don't believe in our right to keep and bear arms for the preservation of our national independence. Say, for instance, if a foreign adversary invaded our country. They don't think that it's a legit thing that we would be able to protect ourselves. They'll send weapons to the Ukrainian common man, the Ukrainian citizen, to defend his own country against the Russians. But 
you and me defending ourselves in case of an invasion of a hostile foreign power. Not so much. They, they're not sold on that. They think that's ridiculous and they mock that and they ridicule that and they scoff at it. But what about what happened in Israel here very recently? Hamas carries out this large-scale, carefully coordinated, long-planned, long-prepared-for attack against Israeli men, women, and children, the elderly and infants, the very young, the very old, the defenseless in particular. They brutally murdered, raped, tortured, and generally terrorized the whole nation of Israel. And when common citizens didn't have access to firearms to protect themselves, their families, their friends, their neighbors, their loved ones, they were easy prey for terrorists. The risk is very high that America is going to see those same kinds of attacks here. And whether or not the Billings Gazette and Aaron Bolton and any Democrat anywhere or lots of Democrats all over the country would like to push for comprehensive gun control, gun confiscation even. Regardless, I still maintain we need to be thinking about why the Second Amendment is in the Constitution in the first place. Our founding fathers had just embarked on a war of independence with Great Britain. A war of independence in which people who were not a separate nation were going to fight against the standing armies of the mother country and win with not thoughts and prayers, not cleverly devised arguments alone. They were going to fight and win with weapons. Think back to 1 Samuel and what it says about who all had a sword and a spear among all of the men of Israel who were fighting against the Philistines. Only Saul and his son, Jonathan. Nobody else had a sword or a spear. Why? Because the Philistines wouldn't let them have blacksmiths, wouldn't let them make swords or spears. The Philistines, as they occupied Israeli Israelite territory, insisted that, you know what, if you have some iron farm implements, if you have some iron tools and you need them sharpened, you just come to one of our blacksmiths. Yeah, we'll have a flat rate. What we'll charge you for sharpening this or sharpening that or sharpening this, it'll be common knowledge. We'll let everybody know that's how we're going to handle this because why? Because the Philistines wanted the people of Israel to remain under the rule of the Philistines. If the men of Israel had swords and spears, they might just fight and they might just win and they might just throw off Philistine oppression. And so also the statists in America who want to redistribute, radically redistribute your wealth, your political power, your ability even to articulate an alternative position to criticize or cross-examine the folks on the left who have statist solutions for every problem, statist problems for every solution, they want you to not have the capacity to protect yourself, your family, your friends, your neighbors, your property, more to the point. They want you to be completely at their mercy. But don't take my word for it that what the Democrats really want 
is to abolish the Second Amendment and to take away your guns. Here, I'll play for you cut one from a recent speech that Vice President Kamala Harris gave in the wake of a recent mass shooting here in the United States. I'll play the audio for you, and then I have some commentary. Here it is. Cut one. Take a listen. Once again, routine gatherings, this time at a bowling alley and a restaurant, have been turned into scenes of horrific carnage. Doug and I mourn for those who were killed. We pray for those who were injured and grieve with so many whose lives are forever changed and impacted by what happened. The Biden-Harris administration will continue to provide full support to local authorities. And as we gather details, we must continue to speak truth about the moment we are in. In our country today, the leading cause of death of American children is gun violence. Gun violence has terrorized and traumatized so many of our communities in this country. And let us be clear, it does not have to be this way. As our friends in Australia have demonstrated. Okay. <clears throat> so a couple of things mind-blowing to me about that short one minute and 20 second bit of audio from MSNBC's coverage of Vice President Kamala Harris speaking the day after this mass shooting in Maine. One we'll get into in a minute regarding her saying that Australia has shown us the way. Australia we'll get to in a minute. But the claim that the leading cause of death for children in America is gun violence. Let's examine that for just a moment. According to Pew Research, in a piece that they published, John Gramlich actually wrote the article or summary for us, April 6th, 2023, the number of children in the U.S. who were killed by guns in 2021 was 2,590. In 2020, the number was 2,281. In 2019, the number was 1,732. It's gone up dramatically from 2019, the year before the supposed pandemic, to 2021, in the thick of it, the first year of Biden's presidency. It went up 50%. That's a large increase. But wait a second. Hold on. How many children are there in America? Do you know? According to Children's Defense Fund, childrensdefense.org, there are 74 million children in America. So out of 74 million children in the year 2021, according to Pew Research, 2,590 died due to firearms. Now, don't get me wrong, 2,590 is a lot. That's a lot of children, and not a one of them 
should have died by firearms. Were they murdered? Were they caught in the crossfire as criminals were trying to harm their parents or other adults? How many of these children died due to gang violence? How many of these children were the victims of mass shootings? That I don't know. But none of these children should have lost their lives due to any cause. Firearms, Kamala Harris claims firearms are the leading cause of death for children in America. That's the claim. That's a big claim. If that's true, wow, we should probably do something about firearms first and foremost and fast. Immediately, for the children, we need to do something about firearms. Get all these dangerous firearms away from the people who are going to use them on children. Clearly, that's the pressing issue. That's the biggest problem. If this is the leading cause of death for children, 2,590, even if it was just two, man, two children out of 74 million, that would still be very serious if that's the leading cause of death for children. But is it? And if it's not, then shouldn't whatever the leading cause of death is for children in our country, shouldn't that be the highest priority? I, you know, clearly, if she's telling us that gun violence is the leading cause of death for children, and therefore we must do something about the availability, the accessibility of firearms in our country, then clearly, whatever the leading cause is. That's what we should be doing something about and fast. Well, <clears throat> about that. Interestingly, in 2020, according to the CDC, there were 615,911 abortions in the U.S. According to the Guttmacher Institute, there were 930,160. So there were almost a million, according to Guttmacher. There were 615,000. That's a pretty large disparity. I don't know where somebody's missing or adding in 315,000. But it's give or take 315,000, even if it was just 3,000. That would be more deaths of American children in 2020 due to abortion than due to gun violence. And this is why in my house, we have abort 73 shirts that ask the question, would it bother us more if they used guns? Abort73.com. Check it out. Would it bother us more if they used guns? And for a Democrat, the answer is yes. Because it's not actually about protecting the children. It's about, on the one hand, being able to eliminate a dependent that you don't want to feed, clothe, raise, love, house, give a share of your time, energy, material wealth, affection for the rest of their lives, for the rest of your life. If you just abort them, then hmm, there you go. 
and then so also it's not for the sake of the children that they want to push for gun control. It's really not. If it was really for the sake of the children, they would start with abortion and the Democrats would be saying, we need to make abortion illegal. And if you say that, they'll just say, well, it's not a child. It's a fetus. Fetus is just Latin. You can't just change the language that you're saying child in and then have it not mean what it is. This is a child. So this isn't about the children. Not when it comes to abortion, not when it comes to gun control. This is about the adults and what the adults want. And in the case of the Democrats who push for gun control, what the adults want is they want the common man, the citizenry, to be subject to, to be dependent on the state. Ironically, these are the same people that also, just a few short years ago, were telling us that the police are bad people. You can't trust them. Systemic racism. They're out here just murdering young black men for the crime of being black in America. These are the same people who were talking about defund the police. Catch and release for violent criminals. Definitely for illegal immigrants, but even for domestic criminals, yeah, catch and release. These are the same folks who will apprehend a violent criminal and then put them right back out on the streets to offend, to commit crimes again. And then they'll turn right around and they'll say, the problem here is guns. The problem here is how accessible firearms are. No, the problem here is the human heart. The problem here is that you don't have good anthropology because you have very bad theology, or you've rejected the truth about God, and you've rejected subsequently the truth about man. You don't want to admit the truth about man as found in God's word, because you reject God's authority. Whether you are for the autonomous individual and unrestrained, unmitigated human liberty, for the adults, of course, or you are for absolute oversight, monitoring, control on the part of the government because the state knows best as long as we put the experts in positions of governmental authority, the state knows what's best for you. Either way, it's a rejection of the authority of God to say, here's who he is. Here's who we're supposed to be. Here's how we're supposed to treat each other. Here's how we're supposed to relate to him and our neighbor But the gun control piece is concerning where Australia is highlighted as an aspirational model by Vice President Kamala Harris, with the Australian Prime Minister standing right next to her, and then they applaud when she says, it does not have to be this way as our friends in Australia have demonstrated. What did they do in Australia? Well, I'm glad you asked. In the 1990s, thanks to some reporting by Edward Teach over at Not The Bee and the embedded X post from Citizen Free Press in which I found the video clip that I played the audio for you from. In the 90s, Australia confiscated 650,000 guns in what they euphemistically called a buyback program. That's exactly what Kamala Harris is asking for here. That is to say that the previous piece that I was talking through 
in the Billings Gazette about gun storage away from homes, that's give a mouse a cookie and he'll ask you for a glass of milk. As far as the left is concerned, they want you to register your firearms so that when they confiscate your firearms, they know exactly what to look for and where it'll be found. And all the better if they can talk you into, talk your family and your friends into storing your firearms in some community armory just in case you start to show the signs of being a danger to yourself or others. They don't have to knock on your door right before sunrise and risk some kind of a shootout with you because you don't know who it is at the door. They don't have to risk that if they just get everybody to store their firearms at the armory downtown or across the county. I played the audio for you because otherwise you might not believe that this is what Kamala Harris, vice president, second in line to be president of the United States, is openly, proudly arguing for. I'm not making it up. This is definitely what they want. What might confuse a lot of people who don't watch these things closely, who get stressed out by it all, they're too busy, they don't have time, it's just too upsetting. What might confuse a lot of people is when gun control advocates will put forward something rather more modest in the way of a proposal. And you think, well, that's not that big of a deal. No, but it is though. The small things add up to you going for the whole enchilada. If you're on the radical left, the whole enchilada is repeal the second amendment, confiscate firearms, outlaw and ban private firearms ownership. Or in the few cases where we say you're permitted, we're going to carefully, strictly limit what kinds of firearms you can own. And we're going to monitor and we're going to register. And if you do or say anything that upsets the bureaucrats, the elected officials and unelected officials, then they just say, we're coming. We're going to take away your firearms. We're going to take away your firearms. And if you want them back, you have to apologize for saying this. You have to apologize for doing that. You have to go through this training program or this therapy or whatever. And it's a blank check at that point. Because then once they've disarmed you, they can do to you anything they have in mind. They can take from you anything they want. And they will. And this is before we even talk about who actually conducted the shooting, who did the mass shooting in Maine that Kamala Harris was speaking in reference to in this clip I played for you. And oh, by the way, if we want to closely examine the 2023 Lewiston shootings, the Maine shooting in question here, there's a Wikipedia entry all about it that is fairly lengthy where we learn the name, which I know some people have a tendency to omit because they don't want to glorify those who conduct mass shootings. I don't think that makes a whole lot of sense. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me to say you omit the name of mass shooters. Uh, where do you stop then? Do you omit the name of Adolf Hitler or Mao Zedong because people might want to be the next Adolf Hitler or the next Mao Zedong? No, I don't think so. Robert Card, 40 years old, 
killed 18 people and injured 13 others during a shooting spree at two locations in Lewiston, Maine, October 25th, 2023. The first shooting was at a just-in-time recreation bowling alley during a youth league event. The second occurred minutes later at the Shemengees Bar and Grill restaurant. The shootings are the deadliest in the history of Maine. If I scroll on down to the part of the Wikipedia entry, and by the way, Wikipedia is not <laughs> biased. They don't skew right. They skew left. There's all kinds of nonsense you'll find on Wikipedia, things that are insinuated, things that are omitted, things that are implied to skew left with these kinds of things. But even Wikipedia will tell you Robert Russell Card II, 40 years old, longtime resident of Bowdoin, Maine, was a sergeant first class in the U.S. Army Reserve. He had no overseas or combat deployments, so this wasn't a PTSD thing. But this guy was in the Army. He was in the Army Reserves. He was presumably the very sort of person, the very kind of person that the gun control folks would say should have firearms because, I mean, you have to have law enforcement have firearms. Otherwise, how are they going to protect the innocent? How, how are you going to defend your country from foreign enemies if your military doesn't have firearms? If you can't trust the people in your military and the people in law enforcement to have firearms, well, then you're just saying nobody should have firearms, but then you're talking nonsense. Somebody's going to have to have firearms because now firearms are a thing. But this guy, he wasn't just a U.S. Army reservist, he was a sergeant first class. So this guy's a NCO. He's a non-commissioned officer. He's an E-7. So this guy's not just anybody. And he's not some young kid who's come back from war with PTSD. He's exactly the kind of person that the gun control folks will say the Second Amendment was written for. A well-regulated militia. That is, you know, military. Military people. But then mm, they don't like that either, necessarily. But then what do they want? What are they proposing? Who do they think should have firearms in that case? If you don't have to go through background checks and if you don't have to be vetted and you don't have to be a person of good enough character to have a firearm in the army reserves or in the military more broadly, if you haven't sufficiently vetted somebody to prevent a mass shooting when they're a sergeant first class in the army reserves, then I think your argument is moot. And I think that the issue is not the firearms and the issue is not background checks. The issue is something that has to do with anthropology. It has to do with the human heart. And it's not just mental health in some abstract physiological biochemical sense. And no, it's not enough just to monitor everybody all the time, just in case somebody starts to get weird. Yes, you should have people on the Look out for somebody who's talking obsessively about committing violent acts. You should be watching those people. You should be talking with those people. You should be observing them. But then the solution is, if you're in my shoes, don't do what the Philistines did with the people of Israel and say, nobody's allowed to have swords or spears among the Israelites. Why? Because then bad men have a free hand to do whatever they want, to take whatever they want, to harm or molest or harass or degrade anybody they want. The people who have the firearms or, in the case of the book of 1 Samuel, 
the swords and the spears. The people who have will abuse their power over the people who don't have. What's curious to me about this 2023 Lewiston shootings entry, when I see that Robert Card killed 18 people and injured 13 others, and that there was a manhunt for him, what's curious to me is that nobody at those two public places where he went and conducted his mass shootings, nobody apparently had a concealed carry. Nobody had a firearm to be able to return fire and neutralize this shooter. And that is what would have helped. Common citizens having the right to keep and bear arms and exercising that right with firearms of their own to protect themselves, to protect their family, to protect their friends, to protect innocent bystanders, their fellow citizens, etc. That's what would have reduced dramatically, and it has in many cases across the country, reduced dramatically the capacity to inflict mass casualties on the part of mass shooters. What's interesting is you don't get mass shootings like this in parts of the country where there is high gun ownership among the common citizens, where there's a high expectation that the home you break into, the person who's in that house is going to have a firearm and they're going to know how to use it. The public place that you're looking to shoot up is going to have random people throughout the crowd carrying a loaded firearm and able to return fire and neutralize you quickly. You don't have mass shootings in those cases, in those places. It doesn't happen. Why doesn't it happen? Because it's a deterrent. And that's the big idea. That's the goal is that there would be a deterrence for this kind of behavior on the front end so that you don't have it happening, not take away the capacity that people have to be dangerous. Select people if they've already articulated their intentions. And this guy had, it was known, he punched a fellow reservist who told him to please stop talking about mass shootings and carrying out a mass shooting. That's really disturbing. Yeah, he punched the guy in the face and then what? They immediately arrested him. They immediately investigated him, searched his home, looked for what's he been browsing? What's he been reading? What's he been storing away? What's he been planning? No, no. We're being told we should just trust that the government is going to solve these kinds of problems. If it's a problem of the human heart, then the problem is there in the government as well. Who makes sure that the folks who are going to be protecting us, defending us, are not going to turn on us and become the very predators? They said, we were all susceptible to be. But even just to ask that question, that is a First Amendment question. That's the kind of thing you need to be free to be able to ask and talk about if you want to maintain any of your other freedoms. The First and the Second Amendments are first and second for this very reason. When you're not allowed to ask the question back, and you're not allowed to participate in the public discourse, you're not allowed to cross-examine, you're not allowed to scrutinize or argue in your own defense, and you're not allowed to defend yourself and your family and your friends and your neighbors from would-be predators, every other kind of abuse and degradation will follow after. It's just a question of who will be perpetrating it, when, where, and how. For our last story, though, just to underscore this point, the latest news today, November 6, and I'm seeing notifications crop up left and right on my phone from various news outlets that I follow. Nashville shooter decried crackers and white privilege 
leaked manifesto pages reveal. Luke Rosiak over at the Daily Wire reports on this. I could have referenced a number of different sources. I'll go with Luke Rosiak over at the Daily Wire. I like the Daily Wire's reporting on things. I think they do a great job. Others do too, but I'm partial to the Daily Wire. Thanks to their commentary from Ben Shapiro, Matt Walsh, Michael Knowles, Andrew Clavin, Candace Owens, Brett Cooper, quoting Luke Rosiak's reporting. The transgender identifying killer who murdered six people at a Christian school in Nashville was consumed by leftist racial hatred targeting whites as privileged, according to three pages of The Shooter's Diary, released by podcaster Stephen Crowder on Monday. Quote, kill those kids. Those crackers going to private fancy schools with those fancy khakis plus sports backpacks with their daddy's Mustangs plus convertibles. End quote. The 28-year-old female shooter wrote in a diary entry dated February 3rd. Quote, I wish to shoot you weak ass bleep with your mop yellow hair. Want to kill all you little crackers. Bunch of little blank with your white privileges, end quote. She wrote, three photographs of the pages of the shooter's diary were obtained by Crowder, who reported that his investigative team independently confirmed the authenticity of the images. The Daily Wire's sources have also confirmed the image's authenticity. Why do I bring this up? Why do I talk about any of the rest of this? It's very simple. This is why. Not as simple as, oh, she had access to firearms. No, 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 no. She had access to critical race theory. That's what she had. She had access to critical race theory and believed that these kids and these teachers needed to die because they were so-called cisgender, because they were white, because they were privileged. All of the terminology being used here is straight from critical race theory. This is straight from gender theory. This is straight from Marxism. As in, this was a hate crime. This was a politically and ideologically motivated hate crime. But then that doesn't fit the narrative. That doesn't work in favor of the leftist cause. And so that's why they don't want to have everybody reading the manifesto. It's not, first and foremost, in my view, if you ask me, that they're so worried about copycats, it's that they're worried about critics of critical race theory being taught in American public schools. It's not the guns. It's critical race theory. It's not the guns. It's progressivism. It's not the guns. It's the godlessness. It's the hostility to Christianity, because that was also a key determinant in this particular school being targeted. It wasn't just any school, and it wasn't just any white kids, and it wasn't just any traditional masculine males. It was white Christian males that she wanted to kill and that she expressed hatred and loathing for. Why would she think that killing little straight white boys at a Christian school would make the world a better place because she was taught, she was conditioned, she was brainwashed and indoctrinated into believing that the worst villains in the world are straight white males. And again, going back to what we were talking about with the story out of Colorado and the 115 bodies found badly decomposed in this supposedly carbon neutral funeral home, going back to 1 Samuel 31, 
what we believe about God, what we believe about man is the prerequisite. That's the determining factor. It's not, do you have a sword? Saul had a sword for a long time before he decided to fall on it so that he wouldn't be taken captive by the Philistines. And then they do all manner of terrible things to him. Saul had a sword and he was using it other ways. For his part, David didn't have a sword. When he initially fled from Saul, Saul wanted to kill him. David didn't have a sword. He didn't have any food. He didn't pack anything. He stops off in Nob and asks Ahimelech, the priest, if there's any food. He's on the king's business. Do you have any food for me and my men? Only the showbread. That'll do. That'll work. Yes, we've kept ourselves from women. Do you have a sword? Do you have any weapons here? I forgot my sword. Well, we only have the sword of Goliath. Goliath, whom you slew in the Valley of Ella. That'll work. I'll take it. Why does David stop off and get a sword? Because he's on the run for his life. Because Saul is after him. Because Saul wants him dead. David takes a sword so that he can defend himself. So that he can defend other innocent men who are similarly, for very similar reasons, going to gather around him because they're bitter, because they're indebted, because they've been on the losing end of this new paradigm that Saul rules Israel with. The issue was not the sword. The issue was not in the case of the Nashville shooter or the main shooter, firearms. The issue was not the firearms and it wasn't the sword. The issue was the human heart. How is the human heart oriented in relation to God and in relation to one's fellow man? But then that's also exactly why the manifesto has been kept under wraps and not released to the public to this point. If the claim that they're concerned about copycats is in any measure fair, accurate, true, honest, what is that? That's to say that Potential copycats having access to firearms isn't sufficient. Whatever's in the manifesto would be motivating, would give a reason. But then that is to say the decisive factor for the Nashville shooter was the idea, the belief, the worldview, the presupposition, the ideology that she wrote down in her manifesto. It was what she believed about herself. It was what she believed about her fellow man. It was what she believed about God that turned into murdered children, murdered teachers. You know it. I know it. I think the Democrats in their heart of hearts know it. We need to be honest about it. We need to make sure that when somebody implies that a common citizen shouldn't own a firearm because they might be this kind of a person. No, no, no. The only one capable of stopping this kind of a person is either A, God himself, but then that's not how God typically operates, divine intervention to restrain evil directly day in, day out. No, that's not how God operates. Okay, so then the only one is oneself. But then what if oneself decides, I don't want to restrain myself. I want to do what is evil. In that case, the only one who can stop the person bent on destruction, death, devastation is the one who has the means to use lethal force right back. 
the Nashville shooter stopped when good guys with guns showed up and neutralized her, shot her, killed her. And it's very unfortunate that she died, but she forfeited her life when she set herself on taking other innocent lives. She knew that she was going to die. She intended to kill as many people as she possibly was able to before being killed herself. She expected to be killed and she was looking forward to taking as many people out as she could of a certain racial profile, of a certain gender persuasion, of a certain religious persuasion. This was a hate crime according to the left's definition of a hate crime. She hated straight white males who are Christian or who are being trained to be Christians. She wanted to horrify Christians and to terrorize Christians. That is to say that this was a suicide mission from the outset, but it was politically motivated. It was ideologically motivated. And we need to know that. We need to recognize that like Saul Alinsky writes in Rules for Radicals, before he decided to go into community organizing, he was at the shooting range with his fellow Marxist, preparing for a violent overthrow of the American government. And then he realized that's not feasible. What do you do instead? You figure out what the true radical knows. The true radical cuts his hair, washes his face, puts on nice clothes, and just keeps on going back again and again and again, asking for more and more Marxism until one day you wake up and you find what was 1% compromise today, yesterday, the day before that, the day before that, is now quite a lot of Marxism. It's quite a lot of socialism. It's quite a lot of legal plunder. It's quite a lot of erosion of human rights, inalienable human rights, even the capacity to articulate or to argue for what are our rights as human beings, first and foremost, secondarily, American citizens. Alinsky set a pattern for American radicals and wrote it in a book and published the book. And people read that book and you could read that book. I've read the book. That book tells us why sometimes the modest proposal of gun control seems harmless, but they keep coming back for more and they'll be back again tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day, all the while wanting to not release to the public the manifesto of a transgendered identifying shooter in Nashville, wanting to not wait until the details had come in on the main shooter, because guess what? When the details turn out to support the argument of Second Amendment proponents and defenders, gun rights activists and advocates, what the left will not get is what they have been wanting to get since before the days of Saul Alinsky. What they won't get is gun confiscation, Australia style. They won't get gun bans and gun registries where at any time they could just go in and targeted confiscation, say that this or that person is a danger to themselves and others. Therefore, we have to take away their firearms. They won't get what they want, which is really control over you and me because they're statists. They're totalitarians. They want government as God and they see as their chief opposition Christians who say, no, Jesus is Lord. And we believe in property rights and we believe in individual liberty and we believe in the inherent goodness of maleness and femaleness. We believe in the inherent goodness of parents 
being responsible for their children. We believe in the inherent goodness of worshiping God according to the dictates of your conscience. We believe in the inherent goodness of self-determination, self-control. Christians continuing to operate under the premise that what God says is good is good, what God says is true is true, are the biggest opposition, the biggest threat, the biggest impediment to the Marxists. In closing, what I'll say is I want to let more be said about this Nashville shooter and the excerpts from the diary, the three pages, which have been reportedly confirmed as authentic by Stephen Crowder and the Daily Wire team. I want to hear more of what others have to say about these pages, and I want to think on it. But for now, that's just it. We should want to know what motivates people to do these kinds of things so that we can figure out what the common denominator is and actually deal with that root problem instead of letting people rush before the facts are in, before they've even allowed the facts to get out or be leaked out, allowing those people to ram through restrictions on our capacity to defend ourselves, our children, our neighbors from this sort of a person or somebody who has this sort of a mindset for all the same reasons that people for thousands of years have had swords and spears and bows and arrows and swords now today are guns. So guns in the present for all the same reasons that people for all of human history have had weapons to protect themselves from the wild animals and one another. We also want to retain our capacity to defend ourselves, to defend those who are innocent and an honorable government, honorable news media and social media landscape will affirm the inherent goodness of that instead of vilifying it. Instead of claiming, as those on the left do, you have blood on your hands. If you are opposed to Australian-style gun confiscation, you have the blood of 2,500 children on your hands who die in a year due to gun violence in America. I say, ask the question right back, what about the 600 to 900,000 children who die due to abortion? How about we start there? There's almost 250 to 1 deaths of children in America, according to the CDC's numbers, taking all of my stats from Pew Research. It's almost 250 to 1 deaths due to abortion, deaths due to gun violence. Start with abortion. Otherwise, I'm calling your bluff. I'm saying you really don't actually care about children and you don't care about the firearms. You really want to just control the people and you're concerned about your having a free hand. Just like I want to retain my firearms to protect my family, I'm also going to retain my right to cross-examine, to criticize, to disagree with, to dissent, and to say no, no. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I really do have to run. More to come, more to be said, more will be said, Lord willing. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.
You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.